You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is where we'll be today. Um, if you were with us last week, uh, you'll remember that we wrapped up chapter 18 looking at the advice that Moses' father-in-law Jethro gave to him in light of the uh, just amount of ministry that Moses had assumed responsibility for. The text described to us that Moses was just day in and day out, uh, from morning till evening, uh, meeting with individuals of the, of the Hebrew uh, family and communicating truth to them, answering questions, giving them guidance, direction, answering disputes. Uh, so he was acting as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a, as a teacher, as a judge, as a counselor. And so just a lot that was falling upon his shoulders. And Jethro encouraged him to delegate some of that responsibility. And we said that delegation's good, particularly when we talk about ministry, because it protects the individuals doing ministry. It includes more people who are capable of ministry, and it ensures the ongoing well-being of those serving and being served in ministry. So delegation helps protect those who are doing the ministry currently. Uh, it, it empowers people who are capable of doing more than what they're currently doing. And overall, it serves the people who are doing ministry and who are receiving ministry, because there was also discussions there at the end of chapter 18 that if Moses doesn't make changes, eventually the people are going to grow, grow restless, having to stand in line all day, not necessarily even getting to their needs before sun goes down, having to do the whole process again the next day. And so there was peace that would come through the delegation. So we talked last week about sharing the ministry that God's given you, um, being willing to admit when your ways aren't the best ways. Moses had to come to that realization that he needed to make some changes to his ministry, uh, teaching others uh, what you think only you can do. Uh, that's part of delegation, kind of letting go of something that you've been doing that you realize, hey, somebody else could do this, which will free me up to do other things. We talked about preparing for ministry that God would have, uh, have you do, to be the type of person who is a strong candidate to be delegated to, uh, to have that proven trustworthiness that would make you a candidate where somebody would say, hey, I want to delegate this to you, whether that's within the church or within the workplace. Um, we want to be the type of people that are uh, strong candidates for delegation, for delegation, and then being strong examples of delegation and how it works. So when something is entrusted to you, being intentional to do it well, to do it thorough, to do it on time, so that it reinforces the idea that delegation is good, that when you choose the right people, they will do it the right way, which really does free up more opportunities for ministry. And so we talked about there's humility that's attached to that, flexibility, um, and just a lot of uh, intentionality to be that type of individual. So a very practical sermon last week, not as much doctrine, far much more practical application for us. Uh, today we'll get back into a little bit more of a, a traditional sermon here of a mix of doctrine and application as we get into chapter 19. So I direct your attention to chapter 19. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the communication that, that God gives to the children of Israel now that they've encamped at Mount Sinai as they're preparing for uh, this ministry. Moses responds and, and, and came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. It says in verse 7, All the people answered him together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear what I speak with you, 
and may also believe you forever. We'll get into verses 7 and following um, in in the coming weeks, but I wanted you to see that there's this anticipation of more to come, that verses 1 through 6 is kind of a precursor to everything that the Lord's about to lay out here at the foot of the mountain. Um, And so we'll be getting into that more and more over the coming weeks. But our summary sentence for today, what God has done in past history is the basis for why he expects obedience from us today, meaning his demonstrations of power, provision, and promise-keeping are meant to generate a response of loving, trusting obedience to him. What God has done in past history is the basis for why he expects obedience from us today, meaning his demonstrations of power, provision, and promise-keeping are meant to generate a response of loving, trusting obedience to him. For our kids, we're to obey God in response to all he has done for us. That's the, that's the gist of, of today's text, that God is going to reference back to what he has been doing in the life of Israel, how he has shown faithfulness to the life of Israel, and how he plans to, to work and move in their life going forward with the responsibility they have to attach themselves to him, to, to submit to him, to follow him, to trust him, to be obedient to him. The timing and the setting of, of this next section is super important. It's why we get the details that we get about the timing of when this happens, the location of when this happens, because it's a new arrangement going forward between Israel and God, right? In the Old Testament, they're still getting revelation. We've talked about the the aspects of special revelation, that uh, general revelation is what we know about God and all peoples can know it uh, all times throughout history. The, the things that are evident about God in creation, right? Romans 1 talks about this. The, the things that can be known about God, his, his eternality, his, his deity, his divine power. But special revelation is when God communicates to mankind things that we can't know about him unless he tells us. And so they're getting new revelation here. Up to this point, they've been operating off of the Abrahamic covenant. They have, uh, they have known that God wants to enter into relationship with them, they, that he has chosen a family to become a people, to become a nation. Uh, there's been an awareness and an understanding in some ways of God's laws and expectations, and yet now it's about to get way more specific. New revelation means new responsibilities that come to God's people as he makes himself further known. And so it's important that we know the timing and the setting of this. And so we're told that three new moons have passed since they left the land of Egypt, which puts us at about seven weeks out, right? So uh, seven weeks out since they had that Passover meal, uh, since they got up and left the next morning after the firstborns in Egypt were killed, uh, seven weeks since the exodus from Egypt. Now, They're going to spend the next year camped right here at the foot of the mountain. It's about 11 months that God keeps them right here. And and our time in Exodus will conclude here as well. Like we're going to stay right here at the foot of the mountain of God for for our foreseeable future until we're done with the book of Exodus. We're not leaving the foot of the mountain. So for about 11 months, they stay put in this location. And it's where God instructs them about his law. It's where they begin making preparations for the tabernacle. Uh, So there's a lot of things that take place over the 11 months, but they're not journeying about to the promised land over over the course of the next year, basically. All that's been done so far in the book of Exodus comes to a head here, where the question is being asked, in light of all that we've seen in Exodus, will the people of Israel respond to all they have seen with faith and obedience? What are they going to do with everything they know about God up to this point? Do they trust him? Do they love him? Do they, do, they, do they desire to obey him, to give themselves to him? That's the question that's being asked. Now, I put in my notes that we need to take note of the order of operations here and why it's so important. To note what God has already done and what he's now calling them to at this point, right? Um, God has already rescued this people, saved this people, claimed this people for himself, right? They've already been set free from Egypt. They've already had God do everything necessary for their salvation. He has brought them to him, and it's now that he calls them to obedience. It's now that he is going to give them expectations for how to live for him. Why is that important? 
Because it's important for us to see that the call to obedience comes after the acts of salvation. The call to obedience comes after the acts of salvation. One of the greatest errors in the world is the idea of self-salvation through commandment keeping. We're in a season right now at Trinity where we start a school year where we have to reinforce and remind our Bible teachers and all of our teachers that being a school that's non-denominational, we have people coming from all kinds of churches to our school. And so we try to, we try to keep things in the middle when it comes to the, the teachings about God's word, right? Like we don't want to focus heavily on uh, denominational distinctives right, that would separate us in our worship. Instead, we want to keep it focused on the things that we agree upon, right? And so one of the things that, that we agree upon or should agree upon and one that we will, we will be willing to die upon is that we, we aren't saved by our good works, right? We're not saved by our performance. We're not saved by our obedience. And it's important for our kids to hear that because as you're growing up in, in, the, in the household with your parents and they're calling you to obedience, sometimes you may be think that your acceptance is based on your obedience. And it's certainly not that way with your parents. Your parents love you. Your parents have entered into relationship with you, and they're going to love you through your obedience and your disobedience. God calls us to salvation and then gives us the expectation of obedience, but it's after he has worked to save us. Good works always come after salvation. They're never sufficient before salvation. But they don't earn God's favor. They don't earn his acceptance. We know this truth, but it's worth remembering. And it's worth seeing it here in this context in the Old Testament as well. Because sometimes we mistakenly think in the Old Testament, they work their way to heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and we don't have to do that. And that's not the case. The gospel has always been the same from the beginning of time to now. It's always been the same right? Where it's, it's the grace and the provision of God. And that tone is set in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobey, and it's through the blood sacrifice of another that they're spared, right? It's not that God says, okay, you got to start doing better to make up for what you just did in the garden. It's no, death has to happen, but I'm going to spare you dying. I'm going I'm to put someone else in your place. I'm going to put an animal in your place, which prefigures Christ who is to come. Right? And, and they're about to get lots of interaction and discussion about the sacrifice system and what it means to kill animals and how to kill animals and which animals to kill for their sacrifices. But we know that the book of Hebrews says all of that was meant to point to Christ, right? All of that was meant to create a longing for when can we stop killing animals for our sins? It doesn't seem to atone for them properly, and it didn't. Only Christ, the perfect lamb, could do that. Right? But it's important to see that God had worked to save these people, to bring them to this mountain. It's then that he calls them to obedience. God's already done all that's necessary to make Israel his. He now calls them to act like the people they were rescued to be. Notice it doesn't say, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, I will rescue you from Egypt and carry you to the mountain to be mine. Right? Like that's already happened. That's how we know that their obedience isn't tied to whether he will accept them into relationship or not. He doesn't say, now, if you'll keep, your, keep my commandment, right? He doesn't say, verse 5, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my, uh, my, my, my people that I rescue from Egypt. That's not the message that Moses came with when he came back to Egypt, right? He came back and said, God is going to rescue you. God is going to save you, not because of your obedience, and we learn from other passages here in the, in the first five books of the Old Testament that it's not because they were numerous. It's not because there was anything special about them. It's simply because of God's love for them, that God rescues them. And then he calls them to obedience. And our salvation works the same way, right? We're saved by Christ to now live for Christ. We're saved by him. We're, we're carried by him, just like it's described here in this passage. We're embraced by him. And you can see this when you take time to reflect on your own personal testimony, right? How God worked and moved in your life to bring you to salvation. What, what are the, the circumstances and events that took place in your life where he showed his goodness and grace and mercy to put you into contact with the gospel, where the Holy Spirit could work and move and convict your life to bring you to salvation? Our salvation works the same way as being described here. God tells Moses to remind Israel of where they've been and what has taken place to get them here to set the stage for the why. Why should we obey God? 
Why should we be obedient to everything he's about to tell us? Well, God reminds them of everything that he's done for them. And it's the grounds for why they should trust him. So going back to that summary sentence, God's actions in the past, past history, it's why he expects obedience from us today. Not to pay him back, right? Not to, to, to um, uh, pay off a debt that we now owe him because he's been so good to us. No, instead it's meant to, to generate an overwhelming, loving trust in him. That, hey, when I look to see God's faithfulness in the past, why would I not keep trusting him in the future? God says, Moses, tell them, remind them, explain to them, help them to see where they've been and what I've done to get them here so that when I call them to obedience, it's something that they desire to do. It's something that they want to do. It's something that they trusting and lovingly do because of what they remember that I've done for them already. He's rescued them, carried them, drawn them close to him, and now calls them to obedience. So let's see how this kind of unfolds in the text today. Number one, we obey God because of his power, his provision, and his promises. We should obey God because of his power, his provision, and his promises. Number one, God has used his power to redeem us from our enemies. Notice what's told to us here, that as they make this movement from Rephidim into the wilderness of Sinai, they encamp at the mountain of God. And the Lord calls Moses up on the mountain and gives him the instructions, right? He says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. What do you want me to tell them, God? Verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, right? He starts in the the past, particularly where this whole thing started back in Exodus. He says, remember what I did to the Egyptians. Remember the power that was demonstrated towards the Egyptians. He reminds Israel of what he did to Egypt. He's saying, I saved you. I embarrassed the Egyptian gods. I buried their army and I brought you out of bondage fully. I've saved you from your enemies, right? Remember the the groaning and the moaning that took place um, from the children of Israel. For, For years, they're crying out to God for help, crying out to God for deliverance from their enemies. And we're told that God heard them. Right? And God moved and responded to them. And he rescued them, rescued them from their enemies. And he did it, he did it extensively, right? He's done it extensively when we look back on it and how he, how he acted towards Israel in Egypt. He left no question as to his power in redeeming them. God uses the same power to redeem us from our enemies today, right? Now, we're not in bondage to, to, to slavery to another nation, when we come to Christ for salvation? Who are the enemies that God describes to us that we need to be saved from? What's the enemies of sin and death, right? The Bible talks about how we've been subjected to lifelong slavery to these things, this this fear of death. And it's through the work of Christ that we're set free from those things. We're set free from sin. How? Because Jesus comes to be perfect for us. We're going to talk in the coming weeks how the law is laid out, provisions in the law for their failure, And that ultimately the law is not fulfilled by Israel. It's only fulfilled in Christ when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, right? Jesus is perfect on our behalf, which sets us free today from our bondage to sin. And we're also set free from the fear of death. We don't have to fear death because Christ lives today. He's been raised to life, right? We celebrate that every Sunday by gathering at the beginning of the week because Jesus came back to life on a Sunday, We've been set free from from our enemies. God has shown his power to redeem us as well. But number two, God has also shared his provision to rescue us from trials. God has shared his provision to rescue us from trials. God reminds Israel of what he's done so far in the wilderness. He says, Moses, remind them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. But then secondly, also how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God reminds Israel of what he's done so far in the wilderness. He's saying, I carried you. His protective nurture and tender care is pictured here as eagle's wings. You, can, you want to jot this down, we won't take the time to look at it, but in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 through 11, uh, that, that idea is unpacked a little bit more. What it meant for Israel to, to have God treating them like a mother eagle who took care of her eaglets, showing great care as they, 
uh, come out of the nest and as there's need for food and water and protection, that's exactly what we see Israel needing when they come out of Egypt, right? They're, they're thrust out of the nest and then they find themselves in the wilderness where there is a shortage of food, there is a shortage of water, and now these predators are coming in and trying to attack them as well. And like a mother eagle, right, Yahweh steps in and takes care of them, provides the food, provides the water, provides the protection, gives them victory over the Amalekites. Many of you are familiar with uh, J.R. Tolkien's stories, and uh, particularly in The Lord of the Rings, it's uh, just like the eagles that we see in those stories where God has swooped in to rescue the heroes. He's scooped in to rescue his people. And he does it time and time again when it's needed most. There's scenes in those books and those stories where all hope seems lost and, and, and victory seems to be impossible and devastation seems certain and the people are able to look to the skies and they see the eagles coming to rescue them, to save them out of the clutches of death. And that's what God does for his people. And we've talked about why he did it this way, right? Like why he set up test after test after test. So they would trust him. So they would learn to believe him and to, to trust him and to be assured by his presence in their life. He shared his provision to rescue us from our trials as well. Many of you are learning that even today, how God continues to work and move in the midst of your trials to, to provide for you when provision seems uh, nowhere to be found. Right For God to step in and to provide for his people. He, he, he's shown a pattern of faithfulness for, for centuries for this. And for a lot of you, you're experiencing that faithfulness right now as he continues to show up and to provide for you. God says, Moses, remember, remind them. Remind them how I bore them on eagles' wings. I carried them. And then thirdly, he says, and I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. Number three, God has kept his promises to remove us from our uncertainties. God has kept his promises to remove us from those uncertain times, right? He, he, he takes uncertainty out of the equation for us if we're willing to trust him and believe him. Think about how this is, is kind of playing out here for us. Where are we at? We're at Mount Sinai. That's where they've camped at, right? It's the location of the first encounter that Moses had with God. So you go all the way back to chapter three where we were at months ago, Moses is tending the sheep, right? He sees the, the burning bush, and so he's drawn to it. He's attracted to it. He goes and, and begins to converse with God there, right? And it's on this same mountain where we now find everybody located. But back in chapter 3, remember what we were told in verse 12. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, as they're talking about this plan of rescue for God's people, there's an assurance, a promise that God gives to Moses. Remember what he says, I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That was the promise that was given. He says, Moses, all of this is going to come together. All of this is going to make sense. All of your fears and your anxieties and your struggles about where I'm at and what I'm doing it's all going to find its, its, its completion when you're standing at this mountain and, and you're able to, to just rest in knowing that, I mean, you've been doing everything. You've been working and moving and providing everything for this moment, for us to be able to worship you. I don't know what that experience was like for uh, Moses. And as I'm sharing this with you, God's reminding me of, of an experience that I had with him that, that, that was maybe similar, probably on a much less scale because I didn't hear from God audibly. But I remember that first school year after the, the shutdown. So it would have been the 2021 school year where school started for us. It didn't start for everybody, but by the end of the year, everybody was going back to school. But man, it was, it was more crazy than the shutdown year because you were constantly uh, having kids in and out of your classrooms. COVID was still being spread like crazy, and there was still a lot of uncertainty about it. And, and even for me as an administrator, there was uncertainty about whether we would stay open or, or if we would have to close again. And man, it was just a heavy school year. I had teachers that were contemplating quitting because of, of not, not knowing if they could uh, safely work. And it was just a, a heavy year. And the 
the, the whole time, um, I, I was driven to get our eighth graders on their retreat to Snowbird where they could worship God. We always start the school year that way, and we didn't get to start the school year that way. It was the first year that we hadn't done it at the beginning of the year. And we finally, after everything had kind of settled and people had gotten comfortable with, with being together and being on trips, I remember us being in Andrews, and it was May. It was right before summer, and we're actually in the middle of staff training for Snowbird. And I remember standing in the back, and I remember worshiping with our eighth graders, and I remember just being overcome with, with such a peace that at the end of a school year like that, I could look back and say, man, God was working and moving the whole time. So much uncertainty, so much fear, so much anxiety, but it was like, boom, we're finally here worshiping God where we felt like he wanted us to worship him with this group of students. And it was just so overwhelming to feel a level of peace that, man, God's been working and moving and he's had this whole thing in control the whole time. Even though it felt out of control, man, God was always in control. I think that's the the feeling that God wants Moses to have here, and he probably did because Moses is probably thinking back to that burning bush experience. And, and as he's now standing here at the mountain, he's thinking about the fear that happened when he went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, I ain't letting the people go. In fact, I'm going to make their work harder and I'm going to make you uh, have to make your own bricks. All right. And him going and telling the children of Israel that and them rejecting him once again and him feeling like a failure. And then all the uncertainty that came time and time again with these plagues that were being unleashed and Pharaoh still saying no, still saying no, and his heart keeps getting harder and, and there, there seems like no possibility of getting out. And then you finally get out and then you're trapped before the Red Sea and, and it's like, man, did God just bring us out here to kill us? Nope, he's gonna split the Red Sea open. And then you walk through the Red Sea and there's no food and water on the other side. Man, did God bring us out here just to starve us to death or make us die of thirst? no. He's going to provide food for you every day, and you're just going to walk outside and get it at your doorstep. He's going to make water come from the craziest places so that you're taken care of. Man, I can't imagine what Moses felt because it has to far exceed what I felt that time at Snowbird. But he's finally here with the people, and he's seeing that, man, God kept his promise, right? Like God's faithful, and he's kept his promise, and he's provided for us. He's done what he said he was going to do. God reminds Israel of how he promised to bring them to this moment from the very beginning. Not only had he promised Moses, he promised the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 6 that he was going to rescue them, he was going to redeem them, he was going to bring them out. And now it's happened, and now they are here, ready to learn what it is Yahweh expects from them. He says, I've embraced you, I've, I've led you to the mountain for worship. Not only did he want Israel out of Egypt, he wanted them close to him. His promise and his execution of that promise brings clarity to everything in between that God was never out of control. By being at that mountain, he's, he's at minimum communicating to Moses, I've been with you. I told you this was going to be the verification that I did send you, that I've guided you the whole time. God has achieved his goal of rescuing a people that can now be set apart to serve him as a light to the remaining world. And hopefully you've had similar experiences where God has shown his faithfulness to keep promises in your life. And and there was maybe a period of time where it felt like, is he going to or not keep his promises? He's shown his power to all of us, that he's going to save us from our enemies, sin and death, that he's going to take us through trials. He's going to carry us through them like eagles, right? And that he's going to work to keep his promises, that he's faithful. God says, Moses, tell Israel all these things. Remind them of all these things. Because as I call them to be obedient to me, this is the why. Why should we obedient, be obedient to you? Because he's been so faithful to them. Because he's been so faithful to them. Obey God because of his power, his provision, and his promises. Because of everything that he's done in the past, it gives us reason to follow him. Secondly, Obey God to serve him and to draw others to him. Obey God to serve him and to draw others to him. He says, okay, Moses, remind him of everything that's happened up to this point. You know what, you, you know what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I carried you and brought you to myself. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... 
you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What is he calling them to here? He's calling them to a lifestyle of obedience, right? He says, obey my voice, keep my covenant, be the treasured possession that you are. Be separate, be different from the other peoples, right? Like he's saying, I want to treat you differently because you are different than the rest of the world. And you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a set apart group for me. Let's see kind of what that means and what's the purpose of that. Number one, as the people of God, we're, uh, we obey him now as a way to serve, which is really an act of worship. As the people of God, we obey him now as a way to serve. It's our act of worship. By following him, they will enjoy the benefits of being his treasured possession. And he can assure them of that, right? Because he says, the whole earth is mine, right? So that's what you need from someone who you're putting your faith and trust in as a sovereign, that he doesn't just control the, the Middle East. He doesn't just control the promised land. He controls the entire earth. So there's nothing that can happen to his people that he doesn't allow to happen or use in their life for good purposes. He's in control of everything. He says, you're going to be my treasured possession, and I can assure you of your safety and your security because the whole earth is mine. In addition to all that has occurred already, there's more to come if you remain in right fellowship with him. Right? He, he's, he said, like, look, I've already done all this act of salvation to get you to this point. But if you'll submit to me and worship me, you're going to enjoy a unique relationship, unique fellowship with me where there's more to come. Right? There's going to be more action towards you than what you've already experienced if you come with me, if you come submit and follow me. Jesus gave that, that, that call to his followers as well, right? To, to come and to follow him and to lay down their life and to lose their life, to find it. He says, everything that I've done gives you reason to trust me, to now act in faith to say, and I'll follow you anywhere. Remember when we talked through um, the, the gospel of John, we saw pictures of Jesus as a shepherd and us as the sheep. And, and we even saw this in Revelation, right? And the idea that if we're followers of Jesus, we follow him wherever he takes us. We follow him wherever he goes. Like we're, we're, we're sheep who are completely abandoned to the guidance of our shepherd. As a kingdom of priests, which we're described as here, they're to be devoted to worship and ministry for him. Right? The, the priest would have been uh, what we see later on as they start to have designated individuals who serve as priests, they're to be individuals who, who live to worship and to serve God, specifically in ministry. But there's a bigger picture here where everybody's to function in this manner, and we see it for us as the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, where similar language is used, not about Israel alone, but by both Jews and Gentiles alike who have become the people of God, the church. It says in verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Think about how the order of operations is working there too, right? Like you're a, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people of his possession. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to tell the world about how he rescued you from darkness into light. Notice it doesn't say, you need to be this type of obedient people so you can be rescued from darkness into light. If it said that, then our, then our salvation would be based on works. But it doesn't say that, right? It says you are to be obedient by showing the world how you have been rescued from darkness into light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the, this is the New Testament version of what we're seeing in the Old Testament here. That he's identifying them as a special people that are to live in special ways to draw other people to God. It's an act of worship. 
Enjoying fellowship with God is grounded on doing all that he says with every area of our life being governed by the fact that we belong to him. Let me say that again. Enjoying fellowship with God is grounded on doing all that he says with every area of our life being governed by the fact that we belong to him. Every area of our life is submitted to him. I was talking to somebody who's a part of our church recently, and they were semi-asking for guidance and direction, um, but it also kind of reached some decisions on their own and were, and were maybe more informing me than asking for guidance and direction. Um, but it was, a, it was a situation where if you're not careful, you violate God's expectations for what you're doing. And, and I cautioned that person. I said, hey, what you're, what you're talking about doing um, probably meshes with how you feel and, and meshes with what you want and what you desire. I said, but knowing what I know about you and, and your desires to follow Christ, you were obligated to be able to align what you're doing with Scripture. Like, you got to be able to match that with Scripture because you're dangerously close to deviating from Scripture with what you're describing there. And I challenged the person. I said, you need to go back to Scripture, and you need to be able to base your decision-making on what Scripture says because you've confessed to me that you desire to do what Christ says in all aspects of your life. And if you mean that, then here's one more area. You better align with Scripture here because I'm not sure that it is. He says, I want you to keep my covenant. I want you to obey my commands. I want you to trust me with what I'm calling you to do. Note here that the call to obedience is without full knowledge of what he's going to ask. You notice that? Like, he says, I want you to obey my voice and keep my covenant. And as we've already read in verses 7 and following, Israel says, okay, we'll do that. And he hasn't told them yet what that is, right? Like there's kind of this, this blind faith aspect of like, God's like, hey, I want you to be willing to do whatever I ask you to do. Okay, we'll do that. Okay, now let me tell you what it is I want you to do. Like that's, that's kind of the flow of what's about to happen here. They're called to obedience without full knowledge of what's going to be asked. But that's the same type of commitment that God wants from us today too, right? My commitment to obey is grounded in my trust of him. And that's why he starts with, think about who I am. Think about what I've already done. Think about what I've already demonstrated to you. There ought to be a safety and security in being able to tell the Lord I'll do whatever you ask of me, even though I don't know what it is you're going to ask of me. Some of us, like, if we knew up front the things that God was going to ask us to go through and to carry and to be challenged with, we might second guess whether we're willing to do it. For some of us, it's good that God doesn't tell us up front everything he's going to ask us to do because it might scare us off. But if we think about his faithfulness in the past, it really can assure us that, man, whatever I face, the, 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 the valley of the shadow of death, he will bring me through to the other side to green pastures. That's what he's shown always to do, right? The motivation for obedience then comes from a faith that says, I trust you going forward enough to do whatever you say because you've proven yourself in the past with such intentional care for me, and I love you for that. Let's focus on that statement for just a second. Our motivation for obedience comes from a faith that says this. I trust you going forward enough to do whatever you say because you've proven yourself in the past with such intentional care for me, and I love you for that. Because that's what Jesus says obedience to his commands flows from, right? If you love me, you keep my commands. Right? We don't keep our commands to, or we don't keep his commands to get him to love us. I mean, he's already demonstrated that love. He's already rescued us. He's already sent Christ to die on the cross. He doesn't need to demonstrate his love any more than he already has. And yet he tells us, I'm going to keep demonstrating my love to you. No, we respond in obedience because we say, you know what? I love you for everything that you've done for me. I trust you going forward enough to do whatever you say because I can look to the past and you've proven yourself. You've intentionally cared for me. I love you for that. And so I'm going to obey you with whatever you call me to. 
That's what's happening here in this text. God says, I've proven myself to you. I want you to trust me going forward. I want you to do whatever I tell you to do. And I want you to do it because you trust that it's going to be done to care for you. And I want you to do it out of a response because you love me. Because you love me. Not because you want me to save you or rescue you. I've already done that. I want you to do it because you love me. Number two, as the people of God, we obey him now as a way to separate. We do it as a way to serve him, but it's also a way to separate from the world. It's our mission, right? There's the aspect of we obey him to worship him, but in the midst of serving him and worshiping him, we're we're embracing a mission with him. And that mission is to bring other people into the fold, to bring other nations into the fold. It's not just about Israel. I like what Isaiah 49 verse 6 says. There's pictures of Israel here, but further fulfillment in Christ. But then even the New Testament authors in Acts start to um, refer back to this passage as well. Isaiah 49 verse 6, it says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's he saying there? He's saying, and it would be too light or it, it wouldn't be awesome enough for God just to save Israel. He says, we're going we're gonna to save the whole world. Like we're going to bring people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue into this. You're the special people that show everybody how awesome it is to live in fellowship with Yahweh to the point that they come to be a part of this. Now, Israel doesn't do this well, right? And as we work through other Old Testament books, we'll, we'll see that more and more. And the picture in the, the New Testament is, is as we're separate and different, there's more of a going versus people coming to see, like we're to go to the ends of the earth to spread this gospel. But the picture here is one of mission, that, that God's not content just to save Israel, that, that he wants to save people from everywhere for his glory. And he uses Christ to do that. I told you that that, that, that chapter in 49 is, is pointing to the Messiah who's going to come to be the light for the nations that Israel is failing to be here. But this idea of separation and holiness is expected for Israel to be set apart for a God who is set apart himself. When we get into it next week, we're going to, or not next week, next week's application Sunday, the following week, we'll see this, this holiness picture as God and the people are separated from each other. God is certainly set apart, but he's calling his people to be set apart too. And he's going to give the law that we're going to see in the coming weeks to shape Israel's life so they display the goodness of God to others. There's a missional intent behind the law. It's to make God known to Israel so that God can make himself known through Israel to the surrounding nations. The law is good, and he wants them to structure their life around the law to show his goodness to everybody that's looking on. Let me go ahead and read this passage to you so you can see that reinforced in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He's calling them in First Peter, to be distinct and separate and different and holy, to live life different. And that it ought to cause people to say, where is your hope? Where is your hope coming from for you to live like this? God wants to reveal himself to Israel, 
but he also wants to be known through Israel as well. Through their distinct separation, they're to be a light that draws others to him. They're to serve the world by living holy lives. They're to make the ways of God's kingdom known to other nations. They're to fulfill the blessing to all nations. That promise that God gives to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. Israel is to be a part of that process. Last statement that I want you to kind of focus in on. Resting in the knowledge that God's power is working for our daily provision with future promises in mind makes much of him. We've been talking about this theme several weeks now, this idea of resting when it doesn't feel like it should be a restful time, right? Resting in Rephidim where there's no water and there's attacks from enemies. We can rest, why? Because we know God's gonna take care of us in that. He's gonna provide for us. He's gonna rescue us. He's gonna deliver us. So we can rest. I started our school year off telling our teachers that summer's ending. Traditionally, that means your rest is over. Now it's time to get to work. And I challenged them. I said, don't let your rest end. Is school about to start? Yeah. Is there going to be attacks from parents that come? Yeah. Is it going to feel like we're in a wilderness sometimes with, with no food and no water? Yeah. But rest. Rest because he's the God of the the, the fall and the winter and the spring, as much as he is the God of the summer when he gives teachers great rest, right? We rest in the knowledge that God's power is working for our daily provision. But there's also this idea that he's got these bigger promises in mind, right? God was working for their daily provision in the wilderness, but the bigger promise was, I'm getting you to the mountain to worship me. And we can trust in the midst of our own challenges, God's gonna work in the days, because he's got bigger promises down the road that he's keeping as well. And when we rest in that, and we make much of him. And that makes people say, where's your hope at? Where's your hope at? God says, I've done all this for you. Now be different from me. Be separate, be holy. And that's application for all of us. It's application for our students who are getting ready to go back to school. And a lot of our homeschool students who don't technically go back to school are still part of groups where you assemble with other kids. So there really is application for all of us, right? Wherever we're going this week, to be different, to be separate, for our kids who go to a Christian school, to not obviously assume that everybody's a Christian because we're all smart enough to know they're not, to live different lives, to be separate, to be holy, to point people to what it looks like to truly rest in the God that maybe they've heard about all their life and have never submitted to, or maybe have never heard of before. To be missional in our obedience. Here's two application truths I want you to remember as we close today. Number one, the motivation for obeying God is valuing what he has already done for me and longing for what he promises to still do. You know how you motivate yourself to, to, to be obedient to what you know is true in the mornings is you get up and you remind yourself through his word everything that he's done for you. And you remind yourself of everything that he's promised to do going forward as well. That's why we obey him. We obey him out of love. We obey him out of saying, I trust you. Trust you going forward to do whatever you ask me to do. I'm gonna be obedient to you because I love you for how faithful you've been to me. Value what he's done for you in the past. Long for what he promises to do in the future. Obey him in the present. Number two, the difference the gospel makes to our communal life is meant to serve missional purposes. Your obedience is an act of worship and it's an act of service, but it's also an act of evangelism to people around you. It's not just a way to worship God, it's a way to point others to him. That means your, your daily obedience carries great weight because the people you come in contact with are looking into your life and you have an opportunity to declare the excellencies of God. This is how he rescued from darkness to light for me. Let me show you that. Let me show you the rest that I enjoy in the God that I trust to take care of me daily with end promises in mind. He's taking me somewhere. This isn't the end. He's got great things in store for my future. And I'm gonna follow him wherever he takes me. Let's pray together. God, <clears throat> we thank you for this passage today. We thank you for the, the truths that it reminds us of the opportunity that it gives us to just stop and pause and reflect on how good you've been to us in our own individual lives. How good you've been to us as a church family over the years. 
how you've carried us on the wings of eagles through trials and challenges and difficulties. Lord, how you've empowered us through your Holy Spirit to remain obedient to you through those things by helping us to remember your faithfulness in the past. Lord, help us to never forget. Help us to constantly be reminded daily of all that you've done for us. And God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would continue to conform our hearts and minds to the belief that because of what you've done in the past, it gives us great reason to trust you in the present, to believe in your daily provisions, to believe in your commitment to keeping your promises. Lord, help that to motivate us to obey you daily as an act of worship, as an act of service. Not because we live under the pressure of trying to earn your favor. You've set us free from that. You've set us free from the law. You've set us free from from the expectations of of perfect obedience because you've fulfilled it completely in Christ. Lord, help us to wake up every day knowing we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, his perfection, which enables us to live freely and obediently for you as an act of love, as an act of worship, as an act of service. And God, help our, our faithfulness and our obedience to you to draw others to you, that others that we come in contact with, they'd be drawn to the hope that we have. God, I pray that our students who are sitting here and learning these same truths with their parents. God, I pray that as they step into this new school year, as they make new friends, whether it's in homeschool co-ops, whether it's in Christian school, whether it's in public school, wherever you take them this school year, God, I pray that as they interact with other peers, Lord, that you'd give them opportunities to show the hope they have in you as well. God, help them to be able to declare the excellencies of you and how you saved them from darkness to light. Lord, help them to live distinctly different. Lord, help them to obey your rules by obeying the rules of their school, by obeying the rules of their teachers. God, it becomes so um, difficult and challenging to live differently at school because so many uh, deviate from the rules, and it seems like the cool thing to do. God, help our students to be different. Help them to live differently. And by living differently, God, I pray that it would draw others to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.